This is Transparency, a podcast by Gender Dysphoria Alliance, hosted by Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell. Each week we'll be joined by people who have personal or professional experience with gender dysphoria and physical transition. We'll also discuss how our trans experiences relate to the concept of gender identity. Join us for a compassionate yet heterodox approach to the question of trans. Ray Alex Williams is a detrans philosopher who wrote a book on trans feminism and philosophy when he was still identifying as trans. After detransition, however, he started a YouTube channel to share his experiences and educate people on gender issues suppressed in the mainstream discourse. Here's our conversation with Ray Alex Williams. All right, welcome back to Transparency. Um, it's been a minute, but we're very, very happy to be back. Um, I'm Aaron Terrell, um, uh, joined as ever by uh, Aaron Kimberly, and um, we're uh, very excited to talk to uh, Ray Williams today. Thanks so much for being here, Ray. Yeah, sure. Happy to be here. Um... I've been wanting to uh, have this conversation with you for a few weeks now, and only a few weeks because I wasn't aware of you until the last few weeks. So uh, <laughs> you kind of uh, popped onto the scene, and uh, yeah, you got a great YouTube channel where you explain a lot of um, stuff related to just kind of like trans culture wars and um, autogynephilia specifically, because um, that's been your experience. And so you. Um, uh, yeah, anyway, it's a great YouTube channel. You're saying a lot of great stuff on Twitter as well. And yeah, I'm just really excited to talk to you about all that. Yeah, yeah. Where, where, where do you want to start? <laughs> I feel like there's so many <laughs> angles to uh, approach. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's a big topic. I usually like to start like kind of corrupt. Well, no, Aaron, you usually say and ask some very important or it's kind of really, really thoughtful uh, therapy type question in the beginning. And then I usually just want to do like a chronological thing. But what really got my attention was when I was reading your, um, the bio that you sent over to us, I didn't realize that you had written a book on uh, trans feminism. Can we start there or what? Like, yeah, yeah, a sure. Different, uh, different place uh, mentally. Cause a lot of this, uh, yeah, podcast is obviously people's different, uh, you know, arcs in understanding their experience and whatnot. But yeah, I'm really curious about that. Yeah, so my academic background is in philosophy. So I have a master's in philosophy and I went to a PhD program in philosophy as well. So, and I started my transition when I was 28 years old and I was in grad school at the time. I was in my fifth year of my PhD program. And um, so I started a blog, the blog was called Trans Philosopher and it was, you know, partly autobiographical, you know, talking about my experiences with early transition um and it was also philosophical you know i was you know reading people like julia serrano and engaged in trans studies and i actually started writing a dissertation on sort of the ethics of gatekeeping and you know transgender healthcare. and so i was very interested in you know trans studies you know queer theory um gender theory and all all these sort of like um, you know, like what would be considered like the discourse on trans stuff. And I was he heavily involved in like blogging and on Twitter back in the day. And so I uh, wrote all these essays on, on, on my blog and, and a publisher reached out to me saying, hey, would you be interested in writing a book? And so I put together an essay collection on transgender feminism and philosophy. Um, and a lot of that perspective was influenced by the fact that, you know, one, I was identifying as trans at the time. And, um, you know, I was also early in transition. So obviously, you know, many years later and also having detransitioned now, my opinions have, you know, very much changed. Um, so yeah, it was an interesting experience because I guess I would be considered to have contributed, 
contributed to you know trans activism in some way or another largely from a more philosophical perspective but nevertheless you know that's kind of where i started in all this conversation so I, I have been involved in the discourse in one way or another for many years it's just sort of lately um i kind of just you know have a career and a job and you know so i kind of got re-engaged with the discourse after i detransitioned because all this stuff is kind of i'm just thinking about things from a totally different perspective now what was that like that kind of shift because I mean, a lot of us and then obviously most people who come on the show had that experience of being a full-blown you know believer to being you know you know the sort of uh, uh going in the other direction and uh, what was that like for you that I mean, it's been really interesting because, um, you know, there's this sort of idea that, you know, that people will say who are involved in trans activism that like, you know, transphobia is like a gateway to all these, you know, conservative right wing ideas and stuff. But f for me, it's more like that way of thinking, you know, being wrapped up in mainstream trans discourse and stuff like this, like, it was really correlated with many other political beliefs and perspectives. So when I sort of became skeptical of these narratives, it sort of allowed me to be more free thinking in many other dimensions. So the trans issue sort of was a sort of perfect culmination of many ide ideological beliefs, you know, um, largely, you know, depending on how you trace the, the intellectual history, you know, and going back to postmodernism and sort of, you know, skepticism about objectivity and stuff. So, so, so you can really trace that um, intellectual history pretty deep in it, you know, has a pretty large impact on your worldview when you sort of are unable to, <laughs> you know, uh, ground yourself in the objectivity of biology that sort of has subsequent effects on how you perceive the world and the, the assumptions you have about, you know, how do you arrive at the truth and stuff. So sort of like breaking free from all that has really, you know, um, been very intellectually interesting because now that I feel freedom to explore, um, you know, alternatives to uh, gender theory, I have subsequently began exploring many other ideas that were counter to my typical, um, you know, liberal leftist, you know, belief system. So it, it's been very uh, interesting, and I'm still sort of evolving and developing lots of ideas. So I'm kind of fresh in the middle of, you know, <laughs> reconfiguring my worldview in many respects. Is, is another book coming? Um, I don't know. I sort of am on the YouTube train now, and I sort of, you know, I, I the the whole uh, experience with traditional book publishing media. It's, I, I mean, I, I, I like books, but I, I you have to go through the editorial process, and it takes like years to publish, and you know, no one reads books anymore anyway, and you get a limited percentage of royalties. So I, I kind of just like YouTube and Twitter these days. <laughs> um, More direct to consumer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. You know, but I don't know, I, I, I might, you know, um, I was actually talking to my wife the other day and she's like, oh yeah, you, you should write another book on this. So um, we'll see, we'll see. Um, Your wife is a detransitioner as well, right? Yes, depending on the terminology, I know people, you know, uh, sort of uh, define these terms differently, but she should she, be considered a de-sister. So she never okay. medically transitioned, but back in college, so this was like late 2000s, you know, she um, identified as trans and socially transitioned. And um, so, she, but then, so, so she's been in the de-sister, de-trans, 
community for like over a decade. So she has like a lot of experience and kind of, you know, that's kind of what was one of the impetus for my own detransition is um, uh, she just sort of like started watching a whole bunch of detrans content, I guess what would be considered, you know, gender critical content or just, you know, exposing to alternative, um, you know, uh, narratives to the mainstream trans discourse. And so I sort of out of curiosity started watching some of that content and it just sort of like op opened my mind to different possibility models. And, and so her experience with the detrans community and, you know, her engagement with these issues, I just sort of, you know, absorbed that through osmosis, I guess. And it just sort of like percolated in my mind. And I, it kind of led to an epiphany one day. Um, and that was like, yeah, the, 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 de the detransition. Um, there's a lot more to say there. So I don't know. Um, Maybe before we dig into that, I'd love to just hear your story and, you know, the path that you took to a trans identity and, and then we can talk about how you then found your way out of that, that ideology. Yeah. I mean, um, depending on one's belief in the concept of autogonophilia, I'd say that was like the, the pathway towards my uh, gender dysphoria. Um, so, you know, from a young age, um, I've been interested in cross-dressing. Um, you know, this definitely had like a fetishistic aspect that evolved um, in my teenage years. Um, and so I, and, and for the longest time, you know, throughout my 20s and whatnot, I just identified as a cross-dresser. I thought I just had this like unique kink or weird um, interest in this. It was very much a sexual thing. Um, but, you know, in my late 20s, um, when I was like 27 or 28, I was seeing a therapist for uh, not, not related to gender issues, but I started talking about gender issues and cross-dressing and whatnot. And um, at the time, I had just recently gotten divorced and um, the, 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 the divorce wasn't because I had like started transition or anything like this. It was like an unrelated, that's a whole um, other issue but you know after I got divorced I sort of sort of exploring more gender issues and at the, the therapist at the time like she's this is in 2015 and there's the, the trans tipping point Caitlyn Jenner was in the news and and my therapist recommended I watch this uh, interview with Caitlyn Jenner this was um, prior to her big reveal so it was um, and and she talked about uh, her history of cross-dressing like this long lifelong history of secret of cross-dressing i was like oh wow like i actually relate to that narrative because i've had a lifelong history of secretive cross-dressing but i never assumed like that would make me trans um so i was like oh wow you can be a trans woman take on this identity of a trans woman and be celebrated by society and you know this certainly seems you know more socially acceptable of a narrative than just being like a male identified cross-dresser. And so that sort of started me down a process of researching things on the internet and like, you know, many um, trans people, uh, trans women in particular, I started researching on Reddit and Reddit is kind of an echo chamber and you sort of, um, you know, read all these stories. And one of the things I was interested in is like, well, I have this like, uh, 
fetishistic arousal aspect to my cross-dressing, does that invalidate me as a trans woman? But if you go on Reddit and you search for that information, you'll say like, oh no, it actually proves you're a trans woman. Um, That's so, for all of us. Often, <laughs> say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, so it's like, oh, well, well, this actually is like a common pathway to this. It seems pretty common. I don't, I, so I sort of like got validation that I wasn't unusual in having that life history. And so I, you know, quickly adopted a trans identity because it's just, um, it, it, it allowed me to do the thing I wanted to do, which was cross-dress all the time. Um, and, uh, then, you know, that the, the, the rest is history, as they mm -hmm. say. Um, you mentioned the social acceptability piece. Do you feel like that was one of the primary motivators? Were you looking for a way of, like, did, how were you feeling about the cross-dressing? Did you feel any shame about it or? Oh, yeah, I, 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 absolutely. I mean, it's just sort of like, you know, if you are a masculinized person as I was, you know, um, you know, I had, I, I've had like 11 rounds of uh, laser hair removal on, on my beard. So even prior to this, I had a very thick beard, very thick beard shadow. So when I cross-dressed, it was like, you know, a very masculine appearing and sort of that combination of like a masculine appearing male person combining with feminine clothes, clothing, it sort of like generates this like, weird response of disgust in a lot of people. And I was, you know, perceptive of that in myself. And so upon cross-dressing and wanting to, you know, not just have this in the privacy of my home on home, but, you know, socially transition, because that was like the first thing I came up with. I was like in grad school, I was like, well, I'm going to start a career. I want to be a professor, but like, it didn't seem like it would be very advantageous to my career to um, wear women's clothing you know, and be this like very male looking person um, in the classroom in front of students or whatever, or in my peers going to conferences, you know. So I sort of initially landed upon a more like by gender sort of like, I was like, oh, like I'm both male and female and my social life with friends and socialization, I'll, you know, present feminine. And then in my work life, I'm gonna, I'll present, you know, masculine. And so, but that didn't last very long because I just realized that it, um, you know, that, that would be hard to maintain. And then as soon as I started engaging in this, like moving towards the, what would be considered in the community full time, um, that desire for full time, it just sort of, it, it started generating gender dysphoria such that I started like hating the masculine aspects of myself, which was the impetus for wanting to go on hormones and getting, you know, laser hair removal and, you know, started really obsessing about passing and all this stuff. So it was the desire to transition that started triggering the generation of gender dysphoria that, you know, motivated me to put a lot more effort into passing and constructing like a coherent like feminine identity um we've heard that from a lot of people and you know people um and i i myself have even described it almost like an addiction like once the idea of transition enters into our heads it it, it creates this almost tunnel vision and this really intense pull forward towards that that goal 
That sounds yeah. like that's what you experienced. Like it, it sounds like you weren't really considering medicalization when, and then this therapist planted that idea in your head that that was a possibility. And then that sounds like that took on a life of, of its own. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the idea was very much planted in my head, but I want to be careful here because I see, and I, I, I grant that this is a personal choice in how people tell their narratives, but I personally, you know, like to acknowledge these external factors and taking on this identity. But at the end of the day, it was a decision and I take accountability for it. Cause I, I was an adult. I was 28 years old. Like this is something I decided to do out of my own volition. It just, it made sense to me at the time, but you know, like if I kind of run the counterfactual of whether I would have taken on this identity, if I, you know, lived in a different decade and had the same desires and experiences, probably not, but I don't want to paint myself as, you know, I, I don't like to paint myself as like a victim of, you know, the ideology. I take accountability and responsibility for those decisions, but, you know, it's absolutely the case that there was, um, you know, uh, I, I was in, wrapped up in the zeitgeist and yeah, it did become obsessive because I remember for those first two years or so, like er, er, early transition, I was just like obsessed with all things gender. I read like everything on reddit related to trans i was just like spending all my time on reddit and and you, and you just get like absorbed in this you know i was going to like support local support groups you know spending time with like trans women and you just sort of like yeah you, you just become like absorbed in the trans bubble i guess um and uh, uh, eventually that all kind of like mellowed out and i start, sort of like um, you know when i started my career you know and Got I just sort of started to live my life as a, you know, more or less regular citizen. But um, those first few years, yeah, it was definitely like obsessive. Um, so it like also does kind of track too that it, that it happened in the wake of a divorce because you kind of like yeah. probably a bit of an identity crisis situation. Uh, yeah. There and then you got the you got the cultural water telling you how to make sense of your you know your sexual experience yeah. you know in this way and then you got the whole ideology yeah. community and it appeals to yeah for all yeah. a lot of things my, my wife was aware that i cross-dressed um but i just sort of knew she wasn't like supportive of it and i remember you know we watched it was like i think it was like orange is the new black and like laverne costa's character there was like a flashback uh, where you know her her character you know, go, go, has this like similar history of like cross-dressing or something like this. And after that episode, um, you know, she like looked at me and she's like, are, are you ever going to want to transition? And like the way she said it, I knew that she didn't want me to go down that pathway. And so out of sort of like obligation to her as a husband, um, you know, I was just like resigned myself to repressing this, these desires, um, even though watching that episode definitely sort of like started getting my imagination going. But at the time I just like, you know, it was just like something that I did in privacy and I knew she wasn't like a huge enthusiastic supporter of that. I could tell that she found, you know, it kind of disgusting in some way or another. Um, but you know, when uh, we got divorced and I was a grad student, I had no responsibilities, no family, you know, I was in a, liberal university setting in grad school supportive of transition um and it was just like i had no responsibilities that would prevent me from taking on this transition so i just 
kind of went for it. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so it, it was kind of like the perfect timing, I guess, um, in, 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 in my life. But, you know, I sort of hear all these like trans widow stories and like, if we had stayed together, you know, for 20, 30 years, like, who knows how long I would have been able to like repress these feelings until like the damn burst. And that's why I'm, you know, like passionate about talking about these issues, particularly autogynophilia, because I think the lack of awareness sort of um, drives people to um, be in denial of their desires, which could make them less informed when they get into these serious relationships that have repercussions for people's lives. So I think, you know, people should be honest with themselves and their, you know, partners about these desires, unless they're capable of like um, committing to like um, certain, you know, way of being in a relationship because not not every like partner is going to be you know supportive what was early what was early transition like for you um i mean a lot of anxiety self-consciousness neuroticism obsession about passing you know but you know i dropped out of grad school in my sixth year my phd program and so i worked at you know some you know, service level jobs like um you know, Starbucks and I was a personal trainer. I delivered pizza. So I don't know, but I don't know. I, I live in a liberal democratic urban core. So I never really experienced that much like harassment or anything. And, you know, when I first came out in grad school, people were supportive. I mean, I was sort of like, um, but yeah, I don't know. I just sort of like, like, uh, like, like a lot of my problems were in my own head. Like, obsession with passing my you know victimization of like oh why are my parents like dead naming you know dead naming and misgendering me like it's like what was me you know sort of like you know i sort of like viewed the lens through like everyone's a bigot and you know people mm -hmm. are being hateful and it's sort of like i just yeah i just became very like neurotic in a sense because i was like obsessed with passing and that whole sort of it, it just made me like hyper self-conscious and like in, in in my book i actually have this chapter called like hyper vigilance in the gender machine where sort of it, it described this early trans phenomenology of just being like you're out in public and you're just like hyper aware of everyone looking at you because you don't pass and sort of like it creates this like level of like uh, heightened self-consciousness and it's, it's just hard to like exist um in a more or less be in the moment without this sort of like you know how are people perceiving me you know how are people reacting to me can they tell or are they judging me and it's just sort of like it was all up in my head uh, eventually that sort of like mellowed out as i got further in my transition but those early years i was definitely like and, and also just you know kind of figure out like you know how to how to like yeah like um you know like re reconfiguring my entire wardrobe to dress like a sensible person and not like you know that, <laughs> um like a prostitute yeah exactly yeah <laughs> like um so, um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like I, I had a pretty good experience. I mean, it, it, it didn't prevent me from, you know, six, uh, like having successful, you know, dating and relationships. I, you know, I, I, I dated a lot of people and had, you know, good and bad and the dating world. And eventually I landed a job as, you know, a trans woman, like a very good career um, and that, that I'm still in today. 
OCD transitioned on the job too. Yes, as as funny, like I transitioned in grad school, um, and then I started like my actual corporate career um, as a trans woman. So I never transitioned on the job per se, um, but I have detransitioned. So yeah, like 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 a lot of people have all, they they you know talk about like oh the difficulties of transitioning on the job, but I never really experienced that because I was hired as Rachel. Um, but detransition, I like, yeah, that, that's been interesting and very positive. I'd say I have a much better relationship with my coworkers now. Um, like as, as like detrans, cause like I said, like, I'm not as self-conscious anymore. I'm not like worried about, Oh, like, are they going to misgender me? <laughs> I can just, I can just sort of like be myself more. Um, nice. How long in total do you live as a trans woman? Eight years. And I was on okay. hormones for eight years, so a good chunk of my life. I'm 36 now, so it was a, um, yeah, it was like a big chapter of my life. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's, um, it's been, it's been interesting. <laughs> people like to, you know, a lot of people, um, I know, because, you know, you and I both have been in a lot of these arguments with the, the people who kind of want to, um, really have a uh, dichotomous understanding of the young people swept up in uh, the uh, the gender movement and then the older AGPs, which you would technically have fallen into. You were 28, which is younger than the, the, the previous, um, you know, what, what people expect from, like, you know, the 80s, the literature, right? It was much older, the whole middle age dam breaking, as you described. But you're, you're kind of a perfect example of, of, of right in the middle of that. It's like, yes, you, you had this, this um, paraphilia from a young age, you could you can compartmentalize it and, and relegate it, you know, to privacy in the bedroom until you encountered the online sphere and the social, the, the just the social, um, yeah, current milieu, milieu who told, that again, I know you, you, it's your decision and everything, but it's the culture that you lived in that told you that was an option, right? And that wasn't an option before, but, um, but and Debbie Hayden has explained this as well, even though she obviously does fit the older uh, you know, the, the older framework um, or template, whatever. Um, but that same kind of ROGD response of like, once you find out you can do this, and I had this experience as well. I think that's what you were uh, alluding to as well, Aaron. <clears throat> Not sure what's going on in the voice, but um, uh, that, that kind of, yeah, ROGD obsessive compulsion. It's like, now that I know I can do this, <clears throat> like nothing is standing in my way. Right. I, I think the question of ROGD is like, it interesting and I would you know want to be careful about disambiguating like the female experience versus the male experience because my understanding of the phenomenon at least how it's been articulated in the literature with you know the, the young females is the gender dysphoria is um, on, on, on this hypothesis it's like entirely generated out of the social contagion whereas with the AGP form of it there's a underlying like disposition that gets um, triggered, so to speak. So it's, it's like an underlying latency. And mm -hmm. if you don't have that underlying latency, you can stumble upon trans Twitter or Reddit or TikTok or whatever. And 
like if you don't have that latency and you stumble on this online world, you're not going to get the social contagion as, as a male. That's what I would propose mm-hmm. as a hypothesis. Whereas I think in the um, teenage female case, like the, the, the gender dysphoria may be um, more like an explainable, like independent of a particular underlying latency that has a very clear trajectory because with the AGP, I think it's very delineated. It's more rigid, I, I would say. And that, and without that, I don't think like, like it's, it's not going to like rapidly onset, I, I guess. And, and to some extent, like um, the, the gender dysphoria, like did sort of emerge out of nowhere quickly, but it has like an underlying basis that goes back much further. So that's kind of how I would disambiguate that. I don't know if that makes sense. What, what were some of your... exactly my, yeah. my, my take as well with the males versus the females. Yeah. yeah. What, what were some of your earlier experiences of AGP? And I, and I asked that I just for some framing because the way that the current literature, like for example, the DSM-5, the way that they outline this is that there are multiple pathways to gender dysphoria. So there's the early onset type, which is associated with homosexuality and the late onset type, which is associated with AGP. But it's my understanding, and I think you're you're saying this as well, that AGP itself doesn't, doesn't isn't late onset, that, that you add early childhood memories of it it's the it's the ge- it's the gender dysphoria aspect that's later onset. W- would you say yeah. that was true with your experience? Yeah, I would say that's true. Like the AGP, my earliest memories of it manifesting were, you know, this was pre pre puberty. I had this particular fascination with um, hosiery. Like it's just is and that was like the fetishistic aspect. It was a particular latching on to this particular item of clothing as a young boy and i remember (laughs) even like just like um being fascinated by this piece of clothing from a young age and like you know um yeah and i just sort of like uh you know did anything i could to get my hands on this piece of clothing you know and from my mother's you know she would like discard them in like the trash can and i would like get them out and like hide them away in like my bedroom under my mattress like as a young boy because i was just like i had this fixation on this piece of like clothing and this was pre-puberty and and but then the puberty sort of like it just it turned the like people don't realize this but i I was actually masturbating pre-puberty um it's just a lot of people do say that yeah the but the puberty um turned the uh it like just changed it 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 turned the masturbation into an orgasmic thing but i was actually pleasuring myself as pre-puberty i i remember that transition was confusing i was like what like why is this feeling different now um but this sort of like um eventually grew more and more complicated and you know and and when i was like in my teenage years when i got a car for example i was like oh wow now i can go to the store and like i can buy my own <laughs> yeah, i remember i like got a car at like 16 and i like went to like the department store or, like sears or something and like bought my own like 
hosiery because this was like my like obsession. I was like with the, this fixation on this particular type of clothing. But then over the years, it sort of got like layered on, you know, it's like, well, then it was like not just that particular piece of clothing, but it sort of, um, you know, evolved to um, incorporating, you know, other aspects of feminine attire to the point where eventually I was like cross-dressing in, you know, full, you know, women's outfits. Um, but, but yeah, I don't know. I, that was sort of, and also when I was, you know, young, I had these daydreams and fantasies. I remember, you know, having daydreams of forced, f f being forced, forcibly feminized in my dreams. Um, you know, like these, like it is, and, you know, so some other weird sort of early memories and fantasies about this sort of stuff. So, and, and I've heard people say like, <laughs> oh, well, a AGP, you know, it's, they say, well, it's defined as a paraphilia and paraphilias are sexual and sexuality only arises in puberty. But if you read Anne Lawrence's book, Men Trapped in Men's Bodies, like she has a whole sections devoted to evidence, scientific evidence showing that there are um, signs and inclinations of um, our orientations towards whatever, you know, type of person we're attracted, either androphilic or gynophilic, and that manifests in like, or like more, it's, it's almost like a, it's like a, like a crush. It's like the difference between a crush versus having like horny teenage lust. Like you can have that sort of like crush and you, so you sort of know as a young age that you're attracted to f femininity and girls, but it doesn't manifest sexually. And I think that's an, like an analogous for AGP where it didn't take on its full paraphilic dimensions, but the underlying seeds are there. And I don't think I'm alone because I've read many narratives and these sorts of desires and inclinations and dispositions, like now there's a debate about whether, you know, all things being considered equal, if you hadn't been exposed to things like pornography or the online world, whether it would develop in the same way, and maybe it wouldn't, but I don't think that changes the fact that AGP as a phenomenon has its origins in young age, because I think a lot of the research I've seen on male sexuality shows that it often does start for, from a young age. It's not like the brain turns 12 and like magically a switch gets turned on, like all things in the brain have some combination of nature and nurture. Like there's very few things with male sexuality that are, are entirely nurture or entirely nature. Everything in the brain is like a combination of nature and nurture, I would say. When Mike Bailey was on uh, Gender a Wider Lens, he talked about a case study of um, an adult man with AGP and the son was also demonstrating like uh, um, cross-dressing behaviors. And I know a lot of the, um, in a lot of the comments, there were accusations that, that maybe that child was being sexually abused and, and that that was missed and, and that child safeguarding wasn't happening. Um, so I do want to just want to ask and put that out there because that's going to inevitably be the pushback on, yeah, on this well, conversation, right? I mean, we're, did you yeah, have an okay I mean, childhood? I, like I, I had a very happy <laughs> childhood. I absolutely have no memories of childhood abuse or sexual trauma or, or anything like this. Like I had a very happy-go-lucky, normal childhood. I was like a rough and tumble boy, you know, played 
in the neighborhood with all the other boys. I, it's very normal. Like I had an older brother, which is interesting because, you know, a lot of people, you know, like um, Ray Blanchard has done studies on like the sort of older brother hypothesis of homosexuality. But I think if um, you sort of characterize like AGP and um, homosexuality and HSTS and all these different, you know, um, manifestations of variations from the norm in regards to male sexuality. Like if you buy into the older brother hypothesis, like, you know, that, that matches my experience. So I don't know, maybe it's like, there's a gradations and like, you know, it's could be like a related in some way or another, as far as like a deviation from the norm in terms of like normal, like, um, heterosexual male sexuality being developed but, but yeah i, I, yeah, I, I think those I, are two the, different different mechanisms though <clears throat> the, the 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 older brother hypothesis with the um that has to do with like horror hor <clears throat> aaron i think you'll do a better better justice but um it's uh, uh essentially uh, 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 due to the older brothers the the having multiple older brothers results in the potential of the younger brother being less masculinized um something to do with the mom's response to testosterone um and so but it seems to be kind of the that's not happening at all with autogynephilia i don't th think that there's anything associated yeah. with that the, ra rather what i have seen and i'm not sure if you've seen this as well but there does seem to be a lot of father son and brother brother pairs who experience autogynephilia yeah um it's hard for me to yeah, I'm just kind of making up that hypothesis. I don't I have no idea if it has any basis. I was just like, I just thought it was interesting because like I heard that and I was like, oh yeah, I, I have an older brother. So, um, but yeah, it could be completely un, 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 unsubstantiated. But um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't think my my dad, I never saw any signs, but I don't know. These, these things with, with like AGP, I, I think it's hard to study empirically because you, 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 you can be so deep into repression. I mean, and if you go online, you read stories, like there are what's in the community called reppers or repressors, like, like, like repression as a psychological phenomenon is like, it, it can be very powerful to the point you can go your entire life without manifesting these in a way that's detectable by other people. Um, so in terms of like the gradation or the spectrum of people for whom like, the repression is not able to keep it repressed and it sort of spills out into their life to the point where they act they act upon it versus people who are just able to successfully repress it their whole lives and like you know and maybe like there was a lot more cases of that in the past because one of the functions of repression is like the super ego like the social acceptability of all this so like you know 60 years ago you know, like <laughs> you have to be pretty like intensely feeling this stuff and have like some lack of inhibition in regards to like social norms to be able to like just openly do this stuff whereas not nowadays there's like a there's like a model for doing it and you know lots of encouragement online um, and, yeah, and you can do it and, and you can start expressing this stuff in like a discord forum or like you can play video games and like have a like a female name and like a voice changer and you can sort of like explore all this stuff like without any real social repercussions now um almost the opposite in that it's <clears throat> actively encouraged especially and this is the the the, the uh, angle joe burgo takes in understanding um agp is is um that you know being being a straight man is is quite villainized 
in uh, our, our current culture. Um, I mean, it's a kind of a blip in time that this is happening, but um, but that's that, that's true. I don't think that creates AGP at all, but I think what happens is if you are experiencing AGP in a culture that villainizes straight men and celebrates trans lesbians, I mean, that's gonna that's gonna weigh a lot into your decision-making process and, yeah. and, and what you do. Totally, I mean, I think there's, it's one thing to have AGP as an underlying propensity, but the thing is, it's just a propensity. It just disposes you to certain thought patterns, but ultimately you have a choice about how to express those. And when you are in a culture, let's say you're you know, a young male who has these underlying propensities and you're in you know, um, a liberal context such that if you, <laughs> you know, a, are a cis, straight, white male, that's like the, um, you know, the un uncertain belief systems, that's like the most evil person on the planet who is responsible for all the evils that have ever begotten our society and our civilization. So if you want to have social cachet in your friend circle, you know, um, if you want to like, not just be like, um, have all your experiences ignored because you, you know, have these certain intrinsic characteristics. Cause it's like, Oh, like if you are a straight white male, cis or cis straight, cis straight white male, then you're supposed to be like, you know, you're supposed to listen to everyone else and you can't ever give your own thoughts or anything. So I could definitely see like why people would want to, you know, like if you have this propensity and it both satisfies the um, desire to manifest that propensity and it gives you like um, a different social cachet such that, you know, now you are, um, you know, oppressed um, and now you can speak and you can have your experiences listened to with compassion and empathy by your friend circle. Like, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think like that would be a strong motivator, e even if the motivations are unconscious. Cause I don't think people are like aware that this is like, like a factor. You can only sort of see it from the outside, I think. But when you're in this world, like you're not aware of what you're doing. It's like an unconscious process. Aaron and I, have, I think I've experienced a bit of that in, in reverse, that now we're perceived as straight white men, and therefore we're not allowed to talk about trans issues or concerns about our healthcare system because we're supposed to just shut up and listen to trans women and especially, you know, trans women of color, right? So it, it's it's such a backwards way of thinking that why why wouldn't we have an opinion on on this stuff in our healthcare system? And especially our insights into what might be happening with the girls. Having, yeah. you know, we're natal females, so we, you know, we have some insight into that, but we're told that we're not, we're not supposed to talk about this stuff. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you guys have um, heard much from people like R R Richard Rees and like the crisis of masculinity and all this sort of stuff. And regards to just like the, the ways in which boys and men, they're sort of like, there's this crisis of masculinity such that, you know, it's like, we, we don't know how to be. Like, um, there's not like a standard model these days. So if you're, um, you know, have these propensities and you're, you know, sensitive and you sort of, um, you know, like uh, are sensitive or introverted or something like this, you're gonna like, it's very easy to 
retroject your historical um, difficulties um, living up to the male gender role um, and then say like, well, this inability to fully embrace the, all these, you know, gender roles that is like um, proof or evidence that, you know, one has this like uh, gender identity or something like this. Like, um, and that was something I experienced very commonly, like in my opinion, like um, spending time with like uh, trans women um, who most of whom the ones I hung out with in my support groups were like the, the AGP type, I would say. And the sort of like retrojection of like, um, I, you know, the transitioning at 40 years old, but I, I felt like this since like I was five, I just like repressed it. And it's like, it's like, who's going to say that's false. <laughs> I mean, like, it's, it's like, you can't like go back and measure like, how someone thought at five years old and we just tell ourselves these stories and we have these yeah. narratives and I think it's very easy to sort of like yeah retroject um I'm conscious of the time and I want to make sure we give some time to your to your detransition story so let's uh let's kind of shift gears a little bit here and if you can just kind of talk about you know, events leading up to your decision to detransition and the context around that? So one of the main motivators was actually health related. So um, I uh, had a pulmonary embolism when I was um, on hormones um, and uh, pancreatitis. Um, and uh, one of the causal factors that led to these health events was the fact that at the time I was taking oral estrogen. So when you take the oral form of estrogen, um, it has an impact on your liver um, more so than if you take patches or injectables. And so, um, and I had a history of smoking, um, which, you know, yeah, they, they, they say like when I got like the, the script or whatever, like it's part of the informed consent process. So it's like, yeah, smoking is bad, but it's like, it's not like they will deny you that or, you know, <laughs> they just say, don't do it. But it's like, if you have an addiction to cigarettes, then, you know, you're going to be putting yourself at pretty significant uh, cardiovascular risk. And so I was just one of these unlucky people who had a very severe um, reaction to the oral form of estrogen. And so, you know, subsequently that all got stabilized and I was on patches and patches are supposedly, you know, um, not as risky as far as this goes. And I, you know, and I was like, but, but yeah, as a result of this, and also just part of being in the trans healthcare system, like you got to go to the doctor every, every three months, get your blood checked. You got to, you know, do the patches like twice a week. And it's very annoying to do the patches. And I was taking like the testosterone blocker spironolactone, which is a whole host of side effects. And I like, for whatever reason, I never really wanted to get an orchiectomy. Like, I just like, I, I just put it off. I just kept putting it off and putting it off. I didn't really know why. I just like, I don't want to do that. Like partly it's like f f financial, but I don't think that was the real reason. I think like unconsciously, like I knew that, <laughs> you know, it was just like, I had this like unconscious resistance to doing that. I don't know why. Um, I'm kind of very grateful that I never did obviously now, but at some point, you know, once I started watching these deep transition narratives and there was like one D-trans creator in particular, I think it was on TikTok where, you know, um, it, was, it, was, it was like a D-trans woman. And she started talking about how like 
detransition can be um, something you do um, to out of joy, more or less. Like it was sort of like you can detransition um, and be happy, and I that never really occurred to me. And so, um, and then coupling that with like the uh, the healthcare concerns, I was just like, I just like I don't know, like philosophically, I was like, well. I don't want to be attached to the medical system. I, I don't want to be going to the doctor every three months for the rest of my life. And nor do I want to do these patch things for the rest of my life, nor do I want to take spironolactone for the rest of my life. And I didn't want to get surgery. So I was just like, well, what do I do? And I just like randomly one day I had an epiphany. I was just like, I, I, I don't want to do this. And I just like stopped the hormones. Um, and at that exact moment when I made that decision, I was still was not necessarily sure if I would like correspondingly socially detransition. Um, I was just like, oh, well, I'm gonna live as a trans person, but um, do my best just with testosterone because I wanted to be natural. I, was, I, I, I suddenly realized I just wanted to be like a natural person independently of the pharmaceutical industry because it just seemed like healthier to me like um and so um as a result of that decision you know that sort of like started a cascade of like subsequent decisions where eventually i was like well i'm going to socially detransition as well which was also sort of made from like an epiphany of sorts um and uh, <laughs> yeah so I don't know. It, it actually kind of sounds like the way you, you transitioned as well. It's just kind of like, well, okay, I'll, I guess I'll do this or I'll do this yeah. halfway, and then sort of like a like a very totally like, it was titrating. It, 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 it was a, it was kind of like very parallel. It was like an epiphany in both directions. Um, I just sort of like decided, like, hey, this is you know, it it, it, it it was like a leap of faith because you know I just wasn't sure. Like I don't know, it just seemed very daunting to me to detransition. It's like oh, I have to like change my name and like, um, like come out at work and, but it, it actually ended up being really great. Like work was very accepting. It was like, it was like a total like non-issue. Um, and obviously like as soon as I like grow out some facial hair, <laughs> like, you know, I, you know, I kind of like don't have any difficulties like, um, you know, passing as like a regular male, um, so and, and and with like the surgery or with like not having surgery so like the, the testosterone came back online like surprisingly quickly <laughs> after eight years of, of oh wow yeah of, of, of suppression my like t levels were back to normal within two months wow wow after eight years of like being zero um so kind of crazy how the body works like that <laughs> yeah that is what's um, life like for you now um, oh, it's great. Yeah. I mean, like socially, I'm very happy. Um, like work is so much easier. Like, um, and, and also like, I, I can just like go out in public. Like one of the things that seems so trivial, but like when I was um, identifying as trans and trying to live this life as a trans feminine person, like obviously like presenting as a feminine person and having facial hair, it causes social discrepancy. And, you know, I, even though I had like 11 rounds of laser, I still had to like shave every day if I wanted to reasonably attempt to blend in as like a feminine person and not, you know, present this like discrepancy that causes people to like stare at you or, you know, um, 
otherwise trigger my own self-consciousness. And so I would be like, yeah, like, yeah, but it, it's like a pain in the ass to like shave every single day. And but it's like, oh, I want to go to the grocery store. I just need to run up to like Walgreens or something. Like I'd have to like go shave just to run up to the store. And I just like, it seems so trivial. And then also at work, like, oh, I can't show myself on my camera. I got to shave. I got to do all that stuff. So like just the mere fact that like, I don't have to put effort into my parents to be a socially acceptable person. I can just like be myself, throw on some clothes, go live my life and not be so self-conscious all the time. It's so wonderful to not have this like obsession about passing and blending in and worrying about how people are perceiving me. So like, um, socially now it's just like, so, and, and, and at, at the time, and this was, one of the motivating factors for my detransition, but I just really wanted, I, I missed being normal. Like I, I missed blending into a crowd of people, like just being out in a crowd, like in public and just being a regular person and who not, not someone who stands out or sticks out or is, is otherwise like weird or something. And it's, I don't know. I just like, I just really missed being <laughs> like normal. Um, so it, it's, it's nice. And like, um, you know, I still have the underlying disposition towards a, a, AGP. I just kind of keep it. And, and I still indulge in that to some extent, but I just keep it in the privacy of my bedroom. Um, if you had known, did you, when did you learn about AGP? I guess, like if you had gotten that information prior to transitioning, you know, what, what you were experiencing, would that have influenced your decision at all? Or did it influence no. your detransition or no? I, I, I actually was very familiar with the concept in, in my book. I wrote when I was like early in my transition, I wrote like several essays critiquing the theory because oh. I, I had read Julia Serrano's critique of the autogynophilic theory and her alternative model, which is called the female embodiment fantasy model, which is basically it's saying that, that theory says like, rather than AGP being the source of gender dysphoria, it flips it around the way so that the gender dysphoria coming from the mismatch gender identity at, at birth, according to the born this way model, it's the underlying repressed gender identity that creates the paraphilia in response to having it be socially repressed and then when you sort of embrace your transition, you embrace your trans identity, you no longer have to repress it. And so it gets like, it sort of goes away because it's, you know, this, this is the big critique of the theory from the trans angle. It's like, well, once you embrace your trans identity and you start doing it full time and you go on hormones, like all this stuff goes away. And that was also my experience. Like when, when I like nuked my testosterone with like HRT, like all these desires and the, the arousal component. And once I started like wearing women's clothing all, all the time, like it just became completely normalized. And there was like no like fetishistic arousal component to it whatsoever. It just became like a part of my regular life. Like, you know, it's like wearing this shirt now, it doesn't do anything for me. It's just a piece of clothing. So, but so, so, so that was at the model. So I was actually aware of autogynophilia. And most trans women are aware of it, but it's a commonly accepted in the trans world that it's a debunked pseudoscientific theory that has its roots in transphobia. So it's just, people are aware of it, but they just don't take it seriously. Um, 
Right, right. Okay, yeah. So I know like that that narrative, but I guess I wasn't realizing, um, yeah, how 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 pervasive the Julia Serrano model is, and so that's kind of how they all interpret it. Is is yes, we know we have these feelings, and that that they're sexual, but that's only because of the underlying gender mismatch. And then once we nuke our testosterone, magically uh, the sexual feelings right. go away. <laughs> And if you go on like Ask Transgender and the subreddit or whatever, or any of these forums and someone posts, you know, it's like every week someone will post, you know, like, is it a fetish? And they kind of give a classic AGP story. And right. then like the, the, the number one upvoted up, up comment is usually a link to like an his essay. There's like a few of these essays that just are very common and they're commonly shared and everyone reads them. And but it's like, is it just a fetish? And it's sort of like, gives the Julia, the Julia Serrano sort of alternative model, which is that it's the, the kink is an outlet for repressed gender identity. That's the model. And in that and, model, there's no explanation at all for why the gender identity would, would be mismatched from the body, right? I mean, there's, there's then no mechanism for that because the AGP is no longer the mechanism. Well, the, the mechanism is usually like the, uh, the brain intersex theory. It's like, oh, we have we have intersexed brains that causes the mismatch, which, you know, usually they are <laughs> relying on, you know, sort of like- Study um, of homosexuals? Yeah, like a, like a tenuous grasp of like the neuroscience or some sort of like neurosexist like belief that there's like this, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. And, and also there's this idea that, well, you know, there's always been trans people in history. So this is just a natural part of human variation. So we don't need to explain it. We don't need a mechanism. We just take it for granted as like an, ex, as like an existing part of human variation within the population. So like if you buy into that model, then there's no need to explain anything any more than you need to explain like why there's redheads. There's, it's just, it's just, it's just, just some people are born like that. It's the born this way narrative. Um, Which, you know, if we abandon the science of all naturally occurring phenomenon, there wouldn't be science. I'm too much right. of a science nerd, right? I mean, it's not <laughs> that it's not that I'm trying to prove that AGP is awful, but I'm just curious. I'm curious to know why things happen. I mean, the fact that yeah. the sky is blue, we have an explanation for that. It doesn't mean that we're trying to change the color of the yeah. sky. <laughs> It, it is yeah. interesting, though, because, you know, like, the sort of both models, the like female embodiment theory and the AGP theory, they both sort of like, roughly account for the same set of phenomena. And then the question is like, well, which is the more parsimonious explanation, which fits into the evidence? And then it's like, the appeal to the gender identity you know, explains it, but the question is, is it a good explanation? And is it as good of an explanation? Um, but then you ask the question, well, what, what, what constitutes a good explanation? And if you're explaining the phenomenon using a construct, that is itself not measurable, because I'm not aware of any way to measure gender identity. Like, so you're explaining the phenomenon using a theoretical construct that no one has ever come up with a way to measure it. Um, so that's why I, I prefer, you know, AGP, just because we can at least measure it. Um, and also I think for independent theoretical reasons, I made like a tweet about this the other day where it's sort of like, to me, it seems like in child development, like desire comes first, identity comes later. So like if you're explaining like, 
desire. That's actually reversed in females, but go on. Oh, oh really? I'd, I'd be yeah, interested. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But go on, sorry. Oh, yeah, I was just saying, well, at least, at least for male sexuality, I would say, like, desire comes first because ch- 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 children don't have the cognitive, you know, like, like a young infant does not have, like, full-blown identities in their head. It's so I, but they have desires because I think desires sort of precede um, the cognitive ability to construct like a complicated social identity. Um, so that would be my sort of like reason for preferring the AGP causal story, which is that it makes sense that sexuality would come first just because sexuality is like such a core aspect of human uh, evolution that would have deep roots in our evolutionary history. Um, Whereas like a a more complicated social identity, I feel like um, would uh, come after. But I'm very curious like about your statement about the being at the the flip side for the females. Oh, um, well, I wanted to kind of weigh the female side in on um, the the whole um, female embodiment, the the Julia Serrano theory. And because that does not apply to to FDM. There's even, even I who believe that there is um, there, that AAP does exist, and I believe that was my mode to uh, to gender dysphoria. There was nothing fetishistic about it, like there was no like at all. Um, and so, so even if you, so, you've got all the all the FTMs, whether they you know have like this typical social contagion thing or some sort of um, target location. Uh, uh, if we want to subscribe to that theory, um, still there's not anything. Um, there's not going to be any like clothing fetish. Well, I did. I stole my brother's clothes when I was little. I would like sneak and try, but there was nothing, nothing remotely sexual about him. I just loved his clothes and hated my clothes, you know. Um, but but so there was. So I guess for for me, my experience of gender dysphoria very closely aligns with the AGP experience. But there was nothing ever sexual about it. So it kind of knocks the whole thing on its face. But it's still that same kind of like drawing and shame and yada yada. But um. But what an uh, uh, interesting thing, uh, a study was done on lesbians in that um, uh, many reported that their masculine identity preceded their attraction to women. So the se- sexual attraction to women arose as a manifestation of the masculine identification interesting. first. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. 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 That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, yeah. I, I can't speak to that experience, obviously, but I mean, that sort of tracks i've heard people like michael bailey say that female sexuality is more contextual whereas like Mm -hmm. male male sexuality is like not contextual it's like it's more it's more rigid i guess is the word to use yeah yeah i think a lot of female sexuality is really influenced by identity and social setting and that's why you've got a lot of like the lesbians until graduation because being a lesbian and graduate in college has you know uh, some social leverage and in that moment they probably are genuinely attracted uh, to women because it's just part of their identity, but that men don't work that way. So it's, it's, it's right. quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's so the sort of thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. This is great. Like I'm very happy to have these conversations and yeah, I appreciate been, you guys inviting me on. It's been great to chat with you, Ray. I hope we get a chance to talk to you again soon. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the transparency podcast. If you enjoy our content, please help out our algorithm by hitting like or subscribe. If you'd like to make a donation, 
all have linked to our PayPal account. On behalf of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, thanks for your support.